This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining me for this special show. The film Sound of Metal, directed by Darius Martyr, is about a punk metal drummer's sudden hearing loss, and it struck me as one of the most compassionate and intimate films of the season. My guest, Paul Racy, plays Joe. He's a deaf Vietnam veteran and leader of a rehab for the deaf. Now, Racy knows Joe. He himself is a Vietnam veteran, a recovering addict, and a CODA, that's child of deaf adults. Racy is the son of two deaf parents, and growing up in the 50s, he was somewhat of a conduit for them in the world of the hearing, helping his parents call about a gas bill or signing out entire movies for them at the theater. ASL, American Sign Language, was Racy's native language, his first language. Director Darius Martyr knew that Paul was his Joe. And for Paul, after 40 years of acting and a decades-long member of the Deaf West Theater in Los Angeles, he's exploded onto the scene. Paul has already won several critic awards this season for Best Supporting Actor, from the Chicago and Boston film critics, for example, and there's much talk of an Oscar nomination. It was so enlightening to get to talk to Paul. We talked about his background, what it's like for a child of deaf parents, his own struggle and journey with his identity, and about his Black Sabbath cover band where he performs entire concerts in American Sign Language. And we also talk about the very diverse deaf community, as well as some of the difficult and interesting discussions he's having with some parts of the community about taking the role as Joe. Riz Ahmed's Ruben is a former heroin addict and punk metal drummer living and touring out of his RV with his bandmate and girlfriend, played by Olivia Cook. Suddenly and terrifyingly, his hearing diminishes. He enrolls in a rehab for recovering deaf addicts run by Joe, my guest Paul Racy. Now the journey starts, a journey of struggle, denial, learning, and acceptance. Here is Sound of Metal. You sound great. Yeah, right. What? You're telling me you weren't feeling it? You were in it. We don't need to, we don't need to put them all out. I know, but we have to keep going. hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou, no. let's play tomorrow. Let's see what it's like, okay? I'm gonna be like a click track. You can play it in me. You have to understand your first responsibility is to preserve the hearing you have. I can't hear you. Do you understand me? I can't. I'm deaf. I'm deaf. Found a place. I think it's important that you stay here with us right now, Ruben. We're looking for a solution to, to this. Not this. I need you to wait for me. 
Okay, you're it for me. Lose my heart. You're it for me. Okay, you got away from me. keep moving it can be a damn cruel place but those moments of stillness Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. So this is such a great movie. Congratulations on all the praise and all the awards buzz that you're getting. How are you feeling? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because I've kind of been waiting for this for a very long time. So I've been waiting and waiting and ready to go for many years out here as an actor. But uh, so it's just more the same. But the excitement is nonstop on Twitter and all the attention and all the people calling. Uh, I used to work, live in Chicago back in 1985. That's where I was, I'm from, Chicago, Illinois. And a, a lady that used to cut my hair uh, contacted me. You remember me? I'm, I'm Jennifer. I, I cut you here in 1985. <laughs> but that kind of thing, it's, it's exciting. No, it's really exciting. And, and the thing about it is that it's such a quality grade A movie. I'm just proud as, as anything to be in it. Yeah, I've, I've read that your wife says that Sound of Metal is almost autobiographical for you, right? Yeah, in a way. Uh, a lot of things about Joe, the character I play, are autobiographical. I'm, I'm a Vietnam veteran. I've been there twice, two tours. I was a medic in the Navy and, of course, grew up with deaf parents. I've uh, In Vietnam, a lot of my addiction uh, journey started right there and struggled with that for many years. And when I finally uh, came to terms with that here in America, um, I was already deeply into working with the deaf community as a sign language interpreter. I'm a certified sign language interpreter here. And I've done a lot of courtroom work. I'm legally certified to work in courtrooms. Oh, wow. That's what I've done for the past 35 years. Uh, didn't, I didn't buy my house here. My, I have a nice modest little house here in Los Angeles. I didn't buy that being a movie star or uh, acting on television. I did that as an interpreter, you know. That's what I've been doing. And I, what I was trying to say about that was that I've also worked in a lot of addiction programs, mm -hmm. tons of addiction programs. Um, now, back in the day, if you were deaf and had an addiction, you'd be put typically into a hearing program where everybody's hearing, and you would go through the program with your shadow interpreter so you could get through the day. Uh, but now you cut forward to a day like today in 2020, there are deaf run addiction programs. Deaf people run these programs. That's the only way to do it. Um, Must be a t total difference. Oh, a, a big difference. Because you're just setting up deaf people. You're setting them up for failure uh, because of the communication gaps, the misinformation that happens. 
if you don't have an interpreter, things are way different today. So you know Joe. I know Joe pretty well. Yeah. I'm gonna. I want to dig into this incredible background um, of yours a little bit. Um, tell me about your parents that you mentioned. Your your mother, I understand, lost her hearing later than your father. Well, uh, there was a stark difference between my father was deafened at the age of nine months, I believe, is the story. Spinal meningitis way back then. My mother the same when she was the age of five. And you think about a five-year-old child. They're completely, uh, they've got vocabulary. They love music. She lost her hearing at the age of five, spinal meningitis. So they they met many years later at a place called the Chicago Club of the Deaf. And, um... It's interesting because my, now look, in the deaf community, there's so many different layers. There are people that are latent deafened like Joe, and there's many, you know, the number one casualty of all of our men who serve in the armed forces is deafness, hearing loss. The ship that I was on, uh, a lot of guys had hearing loss and they have it still today because uh, they had these paper thin uh, Mickey Mouse ears to protect your ears when those planes are flying off to do their bombing. Right. It's horrible. But anyway, my father never heard, never remembered hearing. And he was a very peaceful, uh, serene man. My mother, on the other hand, was pretty bitter about it her whole life. She never forgot music. She's the one that bought me my first guitar as, as a, in high school. She's the one that sent me to a, a, the Beatle, a, a Beatle concert twice. She bought the tickets. She made me, after that concert, come home and tell her what the experience was like because she loved music so much um, and never forgot that. So there was a difference. But in the deaf community, I just want to make one point. Um, my mother meets my father. And in her family, he was too deaf because he didn't speak. My mother spoke, actually, you know, very, as Joe does, in very, very steady and slow, very low tones. Um, and my father meets my mother. And for his friends, she was too hearing. Oh, really? So there's that kind of thing that was going on in the deaf community at the time. Now it's a little bit less, the deaf community's kind of pulled together nowadays. Uh, and they're not quite as uh, disparaging with each other. But there was a thing. Uh, he, he's so deaf. She's, she speaks. What are you doing with her? So I had two very different parents. And I think it was to my benefit because I got to understand a lot about both sides. Yeah. And as a as a hearing child with two parents, um, were you like a, a conduit to the world for them? Uh, that's exactly. Um, I was the conduit. I w- there was there was no technology. I grew up in the fifties. All right, there was no technology. Nothing. Deaf people used these these cell phones, and you can go into a store and just text something out to somebody. But at the time, I was the conduit. I had to make the phone calls. We had a phone in our house and I had to make the calls to the gas company to please not turn off the gas. We're going to pay our bill next week. Wow. All that kind of thing. All that adult world that I was thrown into as a, as a small boy going to negotiate with somebody to buy a car, negotiating the rent with the landlord. You know, it's, um, I, my dad said this, he said, uh, you know, going back and forth and not even knowing what I'm talking about. So yeah, I was the conduit. I was the, uh, and I was, I was the first of four and we all could hear, but I was really uh, the interpreter for the family until I finally um, got drafted. And instead of going into the army, I, I went next door to the Navy and just left home, uh, joined the Navy. 
That meant my brother after me was now the conduit. Right. So that was always the way it was. You were asking how my mother's love of the arts. Yeah. I used, you know, I was, she bought me a record player, a radio. She bought, I had all that stuff. And I used to sign songs for her. I used to, she bought me a radio. I would listen to the radio and I would sign the songs for her. She was fascinated. My father didn't care too much about it. It's almost a very, uh, feminine thing to do to to sign fluently and be beautiful and do these musical tunes my mother loved it uh, later on when i came back from vietnam i started playing uh, rock and roll clubs in chicago and she was also a seamstress she made me my outfits i used to wear these steven tyler type outfits she would sew them but she did mad because she would come and sneak into the club to see me play and i used to take the top she had i had a zipper that used to and she made a zipper, went from my navel up to here. I take the thing and just pull it down and, you know, uh, like Led Zeppelin style. She gave me hell for that, the one night before <laughs> they saw me. But she loved music and he just watching a guy sing. And then, you know, what's he singing about? What's he talking about? You said earlier that you described that Beatles concert for her. How did, do you remember how, how did you describe it? Oh, God, it, the first one was at Kaminsky Park in Chicago, where the Chicago White Sox played. They were on second base on a stage, and we were at, at home plate. Me and these two girls from, that were in high school with me, Janine Walker and Virginia Preet. We went in my mother's Volkswagen. And God, it was the most exciting, stimulating, beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. And uh, when they were done, all you could smell was vomit because all, everybody was throwing up. And there were paramedics all over. All these girls were falling down, hitting their heads on the cement. <laughs> and, but I, I described when I came home, my mother was waiting for me. And, um, oh. yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, anyway. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's okay because um, I described how they came out, uh, the feeling, all the songs they sang because I had the albums, you know. They sang the album uh, from uh, Beale 65. They did all those songs. I even had to do one for her. And it was such, it's a, such an emotional tie because I remember telling her about it and tears coming out of her eyes. And I was so thrilled to see them. It was the biggest thing in my life. But she was so into it. Oh, my God. Wanted to know uh, what song, what was the difference between this song and that song? Oh, and she just, she just loved it. Oh, that's amazing. And, so I, 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 and I fed that. You know, in 1956, Elvis Presley made a movie called Love Me Tender. And that was a big deal. He was on Ed Sullivan at the time. So there was a movie theater a block away from our house in Chicago. And my mother made me, she said, we're going to go see a movie. She, she's stone deaf. We went to see Love Me Tender. Elvis Presley in a Western, adult themes, really exciting for me. First time I was in a movie house to see a movie and not cartoons. Anyway, I'm watching the movie and my mother's sitting next to me and I'm like, like this, interpreting the whole movie to her. When he sang Love Me Tender, I performed that whole movie for my mom. I don't even, I, and I think that's part of what I enjoyed about later on becoming an actor because I, I had to act that whole movie out. <laughs> And I'll never forget the walk, the walk home that night from the movie was so, we were so close. Oh, mm -hmm. it was such a bond. She was excited about Elvis Presley. Because when she was a young girl, she loved Frank Sinatra, but she couldn't listen to Frank Sinatra. So I was a conduit, definitely.
that can't be easy for a child. I mean, you must have been frustrated and, and you know, wanting to do your own thing. Like, for example, when you left for the Navy, um, were you, was it a bit of a relief to sort of do your oh. own thing? Oh, absolutely. I remember up in, my brother and I were up in the bedroom and uh, I looked at him, the cab was out front waiting for me to leave. I was all packed up. I said, hey, Don, it's all yours now. He goes, okay, Paul. Because that was a, that was a constant. And you know, uh, now listen, it's not that way today. CODAs, children of deaf adults, there are, and there are many of them. I belong to an organization of CODAs. We support each other. Uh, it's really a, a bad idea to have your children interpret for you. That's why we have professional interpreters today. And when I was a kid, there were no professional right. interpreters, no certification, no, you know, now it's different. So CODA kids today are lucky. They've got a, an easier I, identification uh, journey than I had. I don't know what the heck I was. I'm not a hearing guy. I'm not deaf. I'm a CODA. I grew up. American Sign Language is my native tongue. That's how I learned to speak and communicate first. It's your first language. My first language. And I learned English second. Well, I'm just saying that today, CODAs, I really admire them because they're they're proud of who they are. And I didn't become proud of who I was as a coder until many, many years later. I started having, going through addiction programs, going through therapy, screwing my life up to the point where I, I messed up my first marriage, everything, uh, until I figured out that I'm a coda. And that's how I think I've become much happier, uh, much more peaceful, and more in tune with what Joe is in the movie. So you think that the sort of, for you being between cultures and having such a responsibility that you, you had as a child, I mean, that's an immense responsibility to be sort of caring for your, both your parents' relationship to the world in difficult situations. Is that, that's part of your addiction? Absolutely. Also, yeah, a part of my caretaker mode. Mm -hmm. You were mentioning uh, that hearing loss is a huge issue in war, Vietnam wars, all wars. Were you, did you take, and you go into responsibility mode, as you say, did you take a responsibility for the soldiers around you that this was happening to as well? Oh, yeah. Well, I was, and on top of that, I, when I went into the Navy, they, I, they said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to be something cool. I want to be a radio man, or I want to, I want to do something cool, you know? No, you're going to be a medic. I did not want to be a medic. It's the last thing in the world I wanted to be. But here I was again, a hospital corner, a medic, taking care of everybody. If the doctor didn't want to do something, I, I got to do it. If he, I don't want to do it, I don't want to sew this guy up. I got to sew him up. Okay, so I'll sew the guy up, give stitches. But yeah, I was thrown into another caretaker situation. And there I was patrolling the flight deck of the USS Coral Sea, uh, an aircraft carrier. And all these guys running around with these little paper thin ears to protect them. And uh, I started having a little bit of the uh, tinnitus. Uh, yeah, I would have that same problem because it was pretty loud up there. The same problem I had working in rock and roll bands. When I got out, I started having that ringing in my ears because we played the music so damn loud. But that must have been scary, right? Oh, listen, about 10 years ago, I, I have a pool in my backyard. And for some reason, I got some water in my ear and uh, I, I busted an eardrum. And I went to the doctor. He said, you, you broke your eardrum. I almost had a heart attack. What? I started, I broke into a cold sweat. 
He goes, well, you broke your eardrum. That's why you can't hear now. And I, I said, you don't understand. You don't get it. You don't know who I am. <laughs> but um, it eventually healed. But that was a very scary moment. Um, but still, you do, as you were mentioning, you play, you're a musician. You're in a cover band, a Black Sabbath cover band. Right. How do you take care of your ears? I mean, this is part of the movie as well, that we see the impact that happens to um, Rizamid's character. Yeah. What do you tell young musicians? Well, today it's a lot easier. In the, in the, old, in the 70s, when I was doing it in clubs, 70s and uh, early 80s, uh, there was no protection for your ears. You imagine that? You've got these amplifiers in back of you. There's, you've got monitors in front, and there's just constant noise. Now, um, there's, there's a few ways you can do it. We wear earplugs, but I also have a system that I use in the band. Uh, it's an audio system. I've got these in-ear monitors. Put them in my ears. protects my ears. I also can modulate on, a, on an iPad how, what sounds I do here. And I can also hear my own voice. So you see these guys with the ear monitors on television or at concerts. Mm -hmm. That's how we protect our ears today. I was saying before that might have been scary, but on the other hand, the deaf community, you grew up, even if, if you know, as you get older and maybe you lose your hearing from natural causes, as, as many do, they won't. you're already in the community, so to speak. Oh, that thought ran through my mind, at least you know, when I was freaking out with the doctor. I thought, well, well, at least I know a lot of people, you know, because... There's, you know, there's a lot of people that go deaf later on in life for whatever reason. Uh, hearing loss is so complicated. And when older guys, like in their 60s or 70s, I start to lose their hearing, like my brother-in-law, people say, why don't you learn sign language? Well, that's a great idea, but who are you going to talk to? Everybody around you has to learn sign language. Are you gonna, you're going to jump into the deaf community now and make a bunch of new friends because you went deaf? It doesn't work that way, you know. Uh, uh, me, I am. I'm part of the deaf community. I have many friends. Uh, growing up, I had tons of deaf men and women that were part of the community. Were like my uncles and aunts, my mentors. You know, but if you go deaf later on in life, it's not that easy a road uh, because it's frustrating as hell. Frustrating. Not every television has closed captioning. The, you can't go to any movie you want to go to. No more music. Little things like going to the grocery store can be. A hell of a journey. You have to tell me about your band. Uh, the band is called Hands of Doom. Sabbath bands are always named, there's about 15 Sabbath bands in Los Angeles. You know that? 15 of them. Sabbath is prolific. They usually name the band after a song, like, uh, you know, Tomorrow's Dream. That's another band. Well, we're called Hands of Doom because I do the whole set, two-hour show in American Sign Language, and I sing with a headset. And it's Black Sabbath lyrics are prolific, they're amazing. War, the devil, God, love, uh, loss. And in sign language, they turn out to be just beautiful. And every time we play a rock club out here, they're all closed right now, of course, this pandemic. But when we play these rock clubs, we have about 40 to 50 deaf people that come into a heavy metal club and just blow everybody's minds because what? Deaf people, music, what? Uh, a lot of deaf people have, hearing loss goes from here to up to here. So there's so many different levels. Some people can't hear a damn thing. Others can hear something. But when they come to the clubs, it's an eye opener for all these headbangers who love heavy metal. And uh, one guy told me at our last gig, he said, uh, the best part of the show for me 
is watching your people, you know, deaf people watching you, the enjoyment that they get out of the music. And uh, boy, it's every time we play a club, those deaf people show up. I don't know. And there's something about, you know, Black Sabbath, the rock, the roll, the, the vibration, it encompasses you. Uh, physically, the sound physically encompasses you, which is another thing that made me almost addicted to that. When we didn't have the earphones or in-ear monitors back in the 70s, I would just like get lost in that sound where I was almost deaf. It was deafening, but I was in that circle of sound and, and power and beauty that that was an addiction to me. When I got off stage, I had to find myself another way to get high. Oh my God. Uh, but deaf people have taken to this band unbelievably. They love it. And visually, it's great storytelling. Great storytelling. I mean, Ozzy, we can need some translation on him in general. I <laughs> <laughs> bless him. Yeah. Well, turning to the movie, to, to Sound of Metal, tell me a little bit about the filming, the community that you worked with. Um, was this a deaf community? Absolutely. Right there uh, outside of Boston. That whole, everybody in the movie that's deaf is from Boston, except for Shaheem, the black dancer. He's from Los Angeles. They came, he came out from Los Angeles. And uh, when I got there, it was about a three-week shoot. Darius Martyr, the director, had gotten a farmhouse out in, a, in Ipswich, which is outside of Boston, a big, huge house. His original plan was to have us all live there, you know, but said wouldn't allow that. But, uh, <laughs> but romantically, it would have been a great idea. So uh, I had a lot of reservations about taking the role because it is a deaf role. It's about a, a guy who's latent deaf. There's a big controversy in the deaf community, and rightfully so, of hearing people playing deaf characters. Right. It's been a mortal sin of Hollywood for many years. In 1948, the year that I was born, Jane Wyman won an Oscar for playing Johnny Belinda, a deaf woman. And my mother at the time, when it was shown on television years later, she was thrilled that a deaf character was in a movie. It ain't that way now. If you're going to cast a deaf character, they better be deaf. There was even some uh, complaints from the deaf community about Riz Ahmed playing a deaf drummer. And, uh, but he's a hearing person going through the experience of becoming deaf. My character is late deafened, which, which, which my mother was, a lip reader. Also, there's so many latent deaf people that it's hard to, to pin them down and they're not portrayed in movies either. So I had to make a decision of whether or not I was going to take the role. And I did after talking with Darius for a long time. He auditioned many, many deaf actors for the, for the role of Joe. And he uh, wasn't finding what he wanted and he ended up going with me. And there's still, I'll be honest with you, I, I know the deaf community very well. And I know, uh, some people out there that are not happy about what I did. Same old thing, uh, hearing privilege. And the only thing that, um, the only way I can deal with it is just talking about my background, my history, what I know about the deaf community, which I've been a part of my whole life. And um, the work speaks for itself. If I've embarrassed anybody by this character I played, I'd like to know about it. Or if I've made anybody uncomfortable, other than a hearing guy playing a deaf person, it doesn't fly anymore. So I understand that Darius um, and, and Riz as well, of course. What kind of research did he do? Darius was making this movie for 10 years. He met with uh, many, many, many deaf leaders and deaf people all across the country, deaf artists. 
So it took him 10 years to put this thing together. So, and he still, he still made a couple of mistakes in the movie that are not culturally correct. So nothing's perfect, you know, but he made a great effort. He tried to do it, uh, but he didn't do it lightly. He did it with a lot of research, a lot of research. What would be an example of something being culturally incorrect? Um, I'll, t I'll tell you, in the movie, uh, for, here's one thing that's, that was wrong. I don't know how we got this wrong. He, uh, he also researched with a lot of audiologists. And in the movie, you remember the guy tells Riz, he has these cochlear implants are not covered by health insurance. They are. That's a mistake. Hearing implants are covered. Hearing aids are not. So this whole thing about it being very expensive. But the thing is... Um, that was a plot point, though. Riz Ahmed is a traveling musician in this van with his girlfriend, right? They don't have health insurance. They're, they're vagabonds. So that was one little thing that people from the deaf community hit upon. You got that wrong. And there were things along the way uh, as we filmed, I would tell Darius, no, that doesn't look like it'd be right. Or this is, you know, and so he was always open. He was an open book to tell me if I'm getting this wrong. Tell me, I want to know. Uh, if there was a line I wasn't comfortable saying, he would let me improv something. So it's amazing. When I look at the film now, a lot of lines I do are improv. Uh, because it would make me feel more comfortable. But Derry said, this ain't Shakespeare. Go ahead and do what you got to do to make it real, you know. So in a sense, you were a conduit for in, in this movie as well, between sort of the deaf community and the latent deaf community and, and Darius and everyone else. Yeah, unfortunately, Darius had to stop me a couple of times along the way saying, Paul, you're being a caretaker. I don't need, I need you to be an actor. Because we had professional interpreters on the set, right? One or two on the set for any of the deaf people that might have needs. But honestly, Christina, when I would see somebody interpreting the wrong way or doing something the way I wouldn't do it, I'd be, I have to say something. So I, yeah. I stick my hand in there and go, look, uh, or I, I see somebody misunderstood. We had a deaf blind character in, in the cast. Remember the guy when Riz goes into his bedroom, there's a, there's a deaf, he, he takes his white cane out. Yeah, he's a deaf blind guy. Well, he needed some special attention on the set because he was missing a lot of things. There I go again with my, I got to make sure he understands. And Darius would say, Paul, I need you to focus on Joe. I'll get an interpreter to do this. So that was interesting. But yeah, there were, it was so wonderful to have all those deaf people uh, congregated in that house. It was a great experience. Um, you were mentioning, I mean, in the movie as well, about, you know, cochlear implants. And was this something your parents ever talked about wanting or? No. No, uh, I remember when they first came out many, many years ago in Chicago, my parents were still alive. We went to a demonstration in a, some kind of a hall where a guy who had just had these cochlear implants installed was going to show the deaf community what a great thing it was. And he had so many problems setting it up technically, and the guy couldn't hear a damn thing. It was, it was screaming in his ear, all this feedback. And uh, I turned to my dad. And I said, Dad, are you interested in that? He goes, no, I don't want that. I'm happy. I'm happy. My mom was more interested, but it was an impossibility for her because she was stone deaf. It did, would not work for her. Um, and it was so many years later. So, yeah, there, was, um, there, is, there is a thing within the deaf community of uh, don't fix me. That's a very real thing. That's one thing you got right. Um, there's nothing wrong with me. You don't know American Sign Language. You're the one that's impaired. They've gone from 
uh, deaf to hearing impaired. And now hearing impaired is a, a form of, it's an insult. Don't call me hearing impaired. I'm deaf. Call me what I am. So that's a big shift from when I was a kid to, to 2021 or even before. Because that started like in 1989, 1990. Stop calling me impaired. Um, and moving seamlessly as you do between cultures, what is the deaf culture brought to you that you you know feel that has enriched your life in a way that that I couldn't you know understand I think it's uh, it's helped me to appreciate uh, and have empathy for the situation that I'm in it's also made me very direct and my dad would say you know right here from here to you you know um, if I don't like something you're gonna know about it here, here's a, a, a thing about deaf people and I, I this I hope you understand this but what de- a very funny joke in the deaf community is when a person sees you and they haven't seen you for a long time, they go, Hey, how you doing? You gained weight. You're so fat. People in the deaf community love that because that's just about how it is. Although I love yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, what happened? You lost so what happened to you? Are you sick? Uh, they'll just come out and ask you something straight out. And I've been accused a direct, very direct. And I've been accused of being a little bit too direct. Mostly from hearing people, like, oh, my God, why did you say that? And I go, oh, shit. You know, I, I was only saying what I was thinking. Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's a very big thing. Um, talking about other movies um, in Hollywood history that have portrayed deafness, do you think, how is Hollywood getting better? Or do you? Uh, oh, listen. No. No, sorry. Unfortunately not. I'll give you an example. Three years ago, you remember the Julianna Moore movie, Wonderstruck? Mm-hmm. Uh, she plays a deaf woman in that movie. Uh, she, and they have a young deaf girl playing her as a young girl in the movie. Beautiful. And then she becomes a woman, and later on in life, she's signing. And uh, when I saw the movie, I have to tell you, she did not do a good job signing. She's a great actor. She's great. She has a lot of empathy. I know that. But she cannot sign, and she did not look like a deaf woman signing. Period. And the deaf community was angry about it, and they got up in arms. Just like a lot of them, there's a small faction. Listen, 95% of the deaf community is supporting what I did in this film, and they love the movie. There's that 5% that doesn't like it. But the Julianna Moore situation, uh, they were so angry. They boycotted the movie. They went on and on about it. It didn't make a dent in the Hollywood. They don't care. They just keep on moving along. Uh, there's a TV series on television right now called The Stand, that has a deaf character. Stephen King, right? Yeah, yeah, played by a hearing guy. They're angry about it. The world on the screen does not reflect the world that they live in. Now, where have you heard that before? There's so many different cultures out here or uh, everywhere that, that are ignored. And also just in terms of people wanting to get work. Yes. And not being represented. If you're a deaf actor, you got a hard road to toe. It's hard being an actor uh, out here in the I've had a hard time getting roles. It's 10 times harder for a deaf actor. And if you're a black deaf actor, it goes on and on. It's just, there's no room for you. There's nowhere for us to put you. So the agent that I work with now has a few deaf actors in her, on her roster. And what she has to do is say to a casting director, hey, what do you think about this guy over here? Maybe he's a deaf guy, you know? Because there's no deaf people uh, in movies. There's no, there's no roles for them. And, you know, we, we need more deaf writers to come forward, too, and tell some stories. That would help out. But Hollywood needs to do better, period. 
So for those 5% who aren't happy yeah. about you taking this role, what, what do you say to them? What, what is the, are, you, are you having conversations in the community? Yeah, they're contacting me. They contact me. Like I said, deaf people aren't afraid to say anything or directly to me. They'll tell me. Yeah. And um, I, I just have to be honest about it, about how it was. I resisted taking the role for a while. And then I talked to Darius. My mother was deaf, late deafened. A lot of the, Joe's character is a direct uh, ripoff of my mother's behavior. There's a little bit of my father in there. But my mother was actually the big uh, impetus for my, my character of Joe. How, could you just describe what one of those things are, is? Sure. Uh, very even keeled. When he has that conversation, when Joe talks to Riz at the very end of our last scene, when he comes back from his experience, very controlled, never raised her voice unless she was uh, freaking out about something that was going to happen in the kitchen or whatever. But she could, she could raise her voice, but she was very controlled because she couldn't hear herself. So her tones were very low. And, you know, on the set, they had that microphone right there. So it was hidden. And I could, I could speak uh, so low you couldn't even hear me because I can't hear myself, you know. And so that's how, that was one of the characteristics of her. And also, she was, my mother was a very, proficient lip reader and she would catch about 80 percent of stuff amazing lip reader and that means that she had to really be focused in on you another thing about joe is that he's very present with riz and so that that's my mother right there just it's it's just you and me baby it's just you and me nobody else here because i can't hear anything you know it's just us so that's she she was um i think she was kind of living with me uh, at the time in Boston, I felt her presence very strongly. She was with you. Oh, yeah. I, I say, look, uh, I, there's not a big, bigger supporter of deaf actors than myself. I've worked at Deaf West Theater out here in Los Angeles for 30 years as a supporting actor, as a lead actor, as a guy behind the scenes. There isn't a bigger supporter of deaf actors than myself. And if I thought that this role could have been filled by a deaf guy, I would not have taken the role. But it just worked out where the casting is it's what I think the role needed. I think so. So did Darius. So um, it's not that bad of a uh, discussion we're having. I, I still feel love from the deaf community. Uh, they can't kick me out. <laughs> it's wonderful that you had your mother with you in spirit during this. Oh, I, that's, that is very, very true. Um, I want to ask you about addiction. These are such difficult times we're going through with lockdown and with COVID and for young people. And I mean, struggling, I'm just reading more and more about how, you know, people struggling with addiction during this period of, of lockdowns is such an absolutely horrific experience and difficult experience. Um, what would you say to, to a young person today who's struggling? Well, yeah, I, I, I can only uh, talk about my experience, but uh you know, you got to get busy. You got you to gotta focus on something that's going to do some good for yourself and for the world. Boy, addiction is so complicated. And I, I can't fault anybody for, doing, for going on their own journey. There's a journey you take. I've been on this journey quite a few years, and I've fallen off the, that horse a few times, and I've had to get back on it. So it is one day at a time. I don't have any words of wisdom other than that, what I've been told by so many of the mentors that I've worked with, it is one day at a time. Sometimes it's, 
I swear to God, sometimes it's a minute at a time until I can get my focus because it's such, it's such a uh, temptation. One thought at a time until you can get over that hump and you need to call somebody. That's why this uh, sponsorship is so important. It's so important where, where Riz goes to find help with, with people that have his same problem. You know, one thing, uh, again, about if I digress a little bit about deaf people, the one thing deaf people love about Sound of Metal is that thank you for showing deaf people uh, that have addictions instead of these saintly, oh, I would never do anything wrong. I would, you know, we have problems just like hearing people. We're just like you, except we can't hear. So that's why it's important that he goes to that community. I love that thing about the script where his sponsor says, go to this community. You know, it's a smart thing to do. As you're saying, I mean, the Hollywood depiction of, of I mean, not only deaf people, but all people with any sort of disability is this saintly. Uh, uh, so more than five or six deaf people said to me, thank you for showing that. Thank you. So people know we're not, you know, oh, everything's okay. You know, even when uh, Johnny Belinda or Jane Wyman uh, gets raped in that 1948 movie, she's mute. What? Uh, what? That's crazy. Uh, this uh, deaf and mute thing from the 50s. There's no mute deaf people. They have voices. Uh, they just can't speak if you want to. All right, so they can't speak, but they have voice boxes and they use them. You know, you listen, there are deaf lawyers. There are deaf accountants, for God's sake. There are deaf criminals. There's deaf people in our prison system that need interpreters. It's, it's, it's everywhere. That's, that's the grittier side of life that I think we all want to know about, that we all want to see. The world isn't, um, you know, a cookie, a cookie cutter perfect. Uh, every, everything works out. It's not that way. But deaf people have really appreciated that part of it, seeing a deaf sober house. Awesome. Which they actually have a deaf sober house here in uh, Los Angeles called Awakenings. As I said before, run by deaf people. Solely, uh, you go in there and everybody's deaf. So you're all on the same page right off the bat. So are you ready for what's coming now with award season and all the buzz that you're getting and, and how are you guys uh, <laughs> preparing? Yeah, uh, well, it's so uh, ironic that it's happening now during this pandemic because now I have to wait. I've been waiting for 30, 35 years for this role to come along, you know, and uh, doing a lot of theater out here in LA, you know, 99C theater, keep my chops up, which is great. But um, now that this pandemic's here and uh, now I'm still waiting. And my phone is ringing, but uh, nothing's happening because there's no, nobody's shooting anything. So it's very exciting here. Um, people contacting me, all the buzz. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. I'm just, I'm just, I'm so used to waiting, Christina. I think I can wait a little longer, okay? And so with that, you know, I, I just have, to, again, with this addiction theme here, it, it's not easy. So I'm waiting. It's it would be the easiest thing in the world for me to, to fall off the wagon right now and just what, what the hell with waiting, you know, but you got to just keep busy. You got to, I got to stay positive. I've got to uh, focus on getting my dog a bath when she needs it, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's, what's so hard is the keeping busy part when, you know, when you're locked in, I mean, yeah. it's a lot to ask of a person who's in any sort of trauma to yeah. Keep busy, but stay hope. Exactly. I, I kind of look at it like uh, keep busy, but get out of your own head, help somebody else. Mm -hmm. There's somebody out there that needs some help. And my work, uh, you know, I still work in courtrooms out here 
and I'm still working. Some of the courtrooms are open. Uh, they're kind of policing it a little bit more, more stricter now. Got to have a mask, six feet distance, all that. But uh, the work that I do interpreting for people in court is so important that uh, it helps me stay on the right path because I'm doing something for somebody else, with somebody else. Mm -hmm. being, in being in connection with another person and facilitating the communication between you and this person, you know, which, we're, which I've done my whole, my whole life. Yeah, you, you continue on that path that you were given. Um, and I'm happy that you do that. Um, Paul, thank you so much. I think this is thank you. It is thank you. Yes, which is beautiful because someone said it's like blow a kiss. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. I think Swedish is like this. Ah, God, I would love to. Yeah. I'd love to someday How, visit Sweden. Yeah, you, you must. How, how, I mean, there is a big difference. Would you understand um, oh, there's, you know, well, other countries? Every country has its own sign language. Yes. Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, Germany, Italy. All, so I don't understand sign language from other countries. But there is a, there is a gestuno, uh, which is international sign language. And there are conferences that are held, and they do this gestuno language between all these, all these countries come and are represented by deaf people and they get together to make life better for, for the deaf worldwide. And um, so no, uh, but however, there are universal gestural things. So I was in mm -hmm. France recently, I was in France last year, met some French people there who are deaf and we got along pretty well. You can, you can there's a little bit of a learning curve but you can make it work. It's all in the eyes and yeah. just, acting things out and you can communicate pretty well. So it's almost, I, I know one thing, it's better than that Two hearing people speaking their own languages like Italian and, and English. That's not, there's no way, but an Italian deaf guy and myself, I think we get along pretty well. Yeah, we need some more gestures <laughs> in yeah, our life. Yeah, great. And mostly what I think is, is you know, universal about your movie and, and about what you've been telling me here today is this thing about presence, that we really would need to be more present with other people in our lives, um, irregardless of what, you know, we're going through or, if, you know, disability or language. Um, and I think that's, that's a really strong message in the movie that, you know, Riz, that sort of, I don't want to give away the ending, but, <laughs> I'm away. but yeah, the, uh, this thing about deaf people, they pick up on things so readily. Uh, they'll know immediately if you're not into them when he's, you're not interested in me because you're not being present, you know, you're not making an effort. And that's the one thing deaf people have always, if you make an effort with a deaf person to try and communicate with them in the best way that you not, Oh my God, it means the world to them rather than, ah, Blowing you off, you're not important. Who are you? You can't hear me. What am I doing? What's down? That added, it's attitude that they pick up like that on. Paul, thank you so much. And I'm will be following you guys in, in the movie and, and I'm looking forward to even more people seeing it and getting reactions. And thank you so much for taking your time so early in the morning. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure. So nice to meet you. Wonderful. I appreciate you very much. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Paul Racy. Sound of Metal is out on Amazon Prime in the U.S., in Sweden, and other European territories. It will be out in February, February 5th, but you have to check on those dates. Everything is changing so much in this COVID era.
And thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a moment, please rate and review. It really helps others to find the show. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzoir, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.